You're listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. The New Testament reading this morning is Luke 1, verses 26 through 38, the birth of Jesus foretold. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? The angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child will, therefore the child to be born will be holy and he will be called the Son of God. And now your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month for her for her who was said to be barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Then Mary said, Here I am, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. So good morning again, everyone. It's the first Sunday of Advent, which means the Christmas season is officially here. It is now officially okay to start listening to Christmas music and buying Christmas presents. And if you happen to be one of those slightly annoying folks who started up the Christmas music back in October and finished all your Christmas shopping like six months ago, the good news is we welcome everyone here. So this is a safe place for you. For the next three Sundays, uh, leading up to our choir Christmas cantata on December 23rd, we're going to be looking at the Christmas story here in worship together, um, specifically the story of Mary as found in the Gospel of Luke. I thought about calling this series, We Wish You a Merry Christmas. Get it? Like M-A-R-Y, Mary. You know a pun is bad if you have to spell it out, so we're not going to do that. Uh, We are not going to do that. You don't have to worry. Um, But we are spending the next three weeks looking at Mary's story together. And I'm guessing this is a pretty familiar story for many of you. Um, If you've seen the Charlie Brown Christmas special, or if you've been to church around Christmas time ever, uh, you've probably heard this story more times than you can count. So to break up the monotony a bit and get us thinking about this old story in a new way, I want to use this first teaching to address some reservations some hang-ups that many of us might have about Mary. These might not all apply to you, but there's a good chance at least one will connect with you on some level. 
We're going to look at three specific reservations this morning, and they actually come from three different eras of history. One of these reservations goes back about 500 years. One of these reservations has only really been an issue for the last century or so. And the third one is a lot more recent. But all of them, um, all of them throw a bit of a shadow on this story. So I want to talk through them and see if we can't shed some light on things. The first reservation I want to talk about has roots going back 500 years to the Protestant Reformation. That's when Lutherans and Presbyterians and Anglicans and Baptists all began to break off of the church in Rome. And that reservation is that Mary is too Catholic. Now, if you haven't been part of a church where this is an issue, that probably sounds really strange to you. After all, Mary wasn't Catholic. She was Jewish, right? We, we at least know that much, right? I'm seeing some nods. Mary was Jewish. Good. Okay, we do. We know that. Good. Thank goodness. But in a lot of Protestant churches, and especially in a lot of Baptist churches, there's this real fear around anything that feels too Catholic. And the Roman Catholic Church tends to put a lot of emphasis on Mary. By show of hands, and, and you can be honest here, again, this is a safe place, how many of you got a bit nervous when you saw Mary on the background of the scripture slide a few minutes ago? Or maybe you didn't get nervous, but you thought to yourself, like, wow, that looks super Catholic. Anybody? No one. So we're actually in pretty good shape. I could, okay, there's a couple. There's a couple. All right, good. Good. Um, it feels good to, to confess that, doesn't it? Of course, confession is also very Catholic. So um, that's good. <clears throat> Mary is a big part of Roman Catholic religion um, and part of their prayer and iconography. And so Protestants have generally reacted to this by downplaying Mary, you know, doing the opposite. It's kind of like a rebellious teenager who, like, rebels against their parents by doing the exact opposite of what their parents do, which ironically means that all their actions are still dictated by their parents, just in reverse. Part of the conflict, part of the tension between Baptists specifically and Catholics really has to do with the fact that our two branches of the church are just very different from each other in a lot of ways. Catholicism has a lot of ritual. Baptists don't like ritual. Catholics are very much about their tradition and history. Baptists hate tradition and don't know our history. <laughs> Catholic worship tends to be very formal, very orderly. But Baptist worship tends to be more laid back and free-flowing. There's a lot of differences. Baptists basically threw out all the ritual and traditions of Catholicism and kind of just replaced it all with the Bible. We're a people of the book. We don't need man-made traditions because we have the word of God. There's a problem, though. If we ignore Mary, we're actually being pretty unbiblical. We're not being very true the Bible we claim to follow. In the new year, uh, my tentative plan is to work through the Gospel of Luke, um, probably between Christmas and Easter. We're going to be preaching our way through about the first half of Luke's Gospel. And Mary is the main character in these opening chapters of Luke's Gospel. There's no way around that. The book of Luke opens up with the angel appearing to Zechariah, that's John the Baptist's dad, but then it jumps right to the angel's appearance to Mary, the passage we just heard. And then throughout the Christmas narrative, the story keeps returning again and again to Mary. We get a brief mention of Joseph, Mary's fiancé, in chapter 2, but then it comes back to Mary. 
Joseph's really only important in Luke's version of the story, it would seem, because he's engaged to Mary. He's her plus one, and not the other way around. Then the angels appear to some shepherds, and they go to worship the baby Jesus. But then we're told that Mary cherished these things in her heart. Again, it returns to Mary. When Jesus is presented at the temple as an infant, a man named Simeon comes and prophesies over him. But at the end of that prophecy, Simeon turns his attention to Mary. And he tells her that this son will pierce your heart, which is a prophecy of Jesus' death. And even when Jesus gets left behind at the temple as a boy, and his parents have to go all the way back to find him, it's Mary, not Joseph, who gets a speaking role. Mary's the main, chap- the main character here in these opening chapters of Luke. If we want to understand the story Luke is trying to tell, we have to begin, as Luke does, with an understanding of Mary. So focusing on Mary is not a Catholic thing to do at all. It's a biblical thing to do. You could even say that understanding Mary is an essential first step to understanding Jesus in Luke's gospel. So that's the first reservation some of you might have with this story. Second one, though, is more recent. It's only become a problem really in the last hundred years or so, and that's the virgin birth. The virgin birth to many of us today, I think, just seems impossible. A number of prominent theologians and church leaders have actually begun to discard or outright reject the virgin birth, or at least downplay it. Um, Rowan Williams, who was the head of the Church of England until he retired a few years ago, he actually caused a huge controversy a while back when he said in an interview that the virgin birth is not an essential belief of the church, which really sparked an uproar in the Church of England at the time. There's this sense for many of us today that we're too rational to believe in something like the virgin birth. Stories like this were maybe fine for the ancients, but we know better today. We've matured. We know that something like that isn't possible. It takes two. Here's the thing, though. Believe it or not, the mechanics of human reproduction has not changed that much in the last 2,000 years. Making a baby today is pretty much the same as it was back then. And 2,000 years ago, people were well aware that it took two to make a baby. And yet this hang-up with the virgin birth really only became a big thing in the modern age. Why is that? What is it about our culture, about us, that makes us so quick to dismiss the miraculous? When Mary questions the angel about all this, he tells her nothing is impossible with God. Maybe this is an invitation to examine whether or not we actually believe that. Do we really think all things are possible with God, or is that just something that we say to make ourselves feel better? Do we really believe that all things are possible with God, or do we expect God to play by our rules of what's rational and possible? And I'm indicting myself here, too. This is something I really have wrestled with. Um, My first inclination whenever I encounter something supernatural or mysterious or miraculous is usually to doubt it, to question it, maybe even dismiss it out of hand. But the one thing that's really saved the virgin birth for me is understanding what it is that made this so important for Luke in his gospel. 
The virgin birth isn't a magic trick. A lot of times we kind of see it like that. And it's not about some weird hang-up the church has with sex. Although throughout history, the virgin birth has become kind of guilty by association with the church's general uncomfortableness, is that a word? With sex. But it's not about that in Luke's gospel. For Luke, the virgin birth has to do with the identity of Jesus and the scope of his kingdom. Luke was an outsider. He's the only biblical author we know of who wasn't Jewish. And so Luke's gospel, more so than any of the other gospels, focuses on outsiders and how the kingdom Jesus announces is for them too. In the ancient world, nationality usually usually came from the father. Women often weren't granted citizenship. And so a person's nationality came from their father. Whatever king your father served, that's the king you serve. But Jesus has no earthly father. He's the son of God. Which is a roundabout way of saying that he owes allegiance to no one. And that his kingdom is for everybody. The kingdom Jesus announces is not nation state specific. There are no insiders and outsiders. No us and them. In Jesus' kingdom, everyone belongs. Because Jesus' kingdom is the kingdom of God. It's not just for the Jews. It's not just for the Gentiles like Luke. It's not just for Americans like us or any other group. The kingdom of Jesus and the salvation he offers is available to everyone. That's a radical notion, by the way. That's the kind of thinking that could tear down walls and turn enemies into friends. And maybe in such a divided age as the one we live in, that feels impossible. But nothing is impossible with God. I believe that. And that's why I affirm the virgin birth, personally. (laughs) So we talked about Mary being too Catholic. We talked about the virgin birth. The last reservation I want to hit on today is much more recent, but no less important. And it's something I am calling hashtag Mary Too. Now, I assume everyone here has at least heard of the Me Too movement. Um, I talked about it at least in one previous sermon, and personally, I think this is one of the most important political movements going on today, if not in my lifetime. Um, The Me Too movement started a little over a year ago with women sharing testimonies on social media about their experiences of sexual harassment, assault, abuse, um, on social media with the hashtag MeToo. The Me Too movement has really raised our awareness and our sensitivity to the kinds of exploitation and marginalization that women around the world experience every day. And against that backdrop, this story looks kind of bad. Mary is a young woman, a girl by most standards today, being told that she's going to have a baby. Not asked if she wants to have a baby but told she's having a baby. Regardless of what it might do to her socially, regardless of the implications for her plans in life and her impending marriage, Mary's going to get pregnant through no will of her own. And her response is, let it be to me according to your word. Which is a pretty bad look for the church in an era of Me Too. 
To make things worse, the church and much of society has tended to elevate Mary as the ideal woman throughout history. Uh, We've turned Mary into this impossible standard for women in the church. Gentle, submissive, quiet, obedient, virgin, and mother. How many women throughout history have been harmed by this flawed and destructive use of Mary? And I say flawed because if you keep reading the story, you find that Mary is anything but meek and mild. Later on in Luke chapter 1, just a few verses after the passage that we just read, Mary gives a fuller response to her situation, and it takes the form of subversive poetry. I'm going to read from Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 46. This is Mary's song. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty-handed. These are not the words of a quiet housewife. They're the words of a revolutionary. This reads like the lyrics to a Rage Against the Machine song, and I realize there are probably only like six people here who get that reference. This reads like a a 1960s Vietnam War protest. I don't know. I'm I'm a millennial. I'm sorry. This reads like a revolutionary song, though. Luke's Mary is pretty far from the gentle Mary, meek and mild, that you've all probably heard about. Luke's Mary is a prophet. That's the backdrop against which we have to read this story if it's going to make any sense in an era of Me Too. Mary is following in a long tradition of prophets from Israel's scriptures, our Old Testament. Uh, Prophets who were anointed by God to speak truth to power. Often being called to risk life and limb to be part of God's saving work in the world. The prophet Nathan marched into the palace and called the king a murderer to his face. The prophet Isaiah walked around naked for three years. Ezekiel laid on his side for 390 days. Hosea married a prostitute. Jeremiah was told never to wash his underwear. That's true. That's in there. And it's gross. It was not uncommon for prophets to sacrifice their reputations, their safety, and even their own lives to follow God's call. And God calls the prophet Mary to have a baby. Mary's response to the angel's announcement speaks volumes. When the angel tells her that she's going to give birth to a son, she asks, how can this be since I'm a virgin? That question doesn't reflect doubt on Mary's part. That's a question about the mechanics. How is this going to happen to me? The ancient world was filled with stories of women bearing divine children. 
Often it was by being a mistress through an affair with one of the gods. Or sometimes it was a lot darker than that. And so you can hear the trembling in that question. But the angel tells Mary that she will not have to sacrifice her honor to bring God's son into the world. Mary is going to become pregnant on her own without the need of a man through the power of the Holy Spirit. God is calling Mary to become a prophet, to partner with God in saving the world, and Mary accepts. Three reservations, three hang-ups with this story as we enter into Advent. Which message do you need to hear today? Perhaps this Christmas season will be an opportunity to explore God's word in a deeper way and re-familiarize yourself with an old story. Maybe God is calling you to believe the impossible this Christmas or to overcome some wall or division in your life. Or maybe God is calling you to be a prophet, to take a stand, To speak truth to power and join in God's work of redeeming the world. Whatever it is, my prayer is that we would all hear the call of God this Advent season. And that it would drive us to a deeper sense of faith and trust in God's Son. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.